before we built this tracker, the best way to find out, which was really not that great of a way to find out, and that's why we wanted to do this, which colleges were under investigation, was that each week, on only on request, so it wasn't like they were posting it anywhere. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital journalism and the people who make it. I'm in studio today with Nicola Grisco, our other producer. Hi, Mike. Hi. We've got a full house here, and I'm pretty excited about this interview. I'm, I'm actually always on the lookout for examples of people using digital tools to tell important stories, real journalistic stories. Recently, the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education debuted its Title IX tracker, which makes it easier to keep track of college sexual violence in the U.S. Joining us in studio are three people behind the project, senior editor Sarah Lipka, data developer Ben Myers, and web developer John Davenport. Welcome. Thanks, Thank Mike. You. And uh, so this is a really cool project. Let's just sort of start with how did this tracker come about? What was its origin? So we follow the world of higher education, and not too many issues have commanded as much attention in the last few years as campus sexual assault. The public expectations are really high for colleges to prevent incidents and to respond to reports that students bring to them and to try to investigate those cases and resolve them and in a way that's fair both to the person who's come forward and to the person who's accused. But there's widespread concern with how colleges are handling these reports, which they're required to do under the law. So the federal government has started to hold them accountable for how they're responding to these reports. And week after week, the government was opening more investigations of colleges to see how they were how they were doing on this front. And at the same time, even though there were more investigations, the enforcement process itself was still something of a mystery. And there were also cases opening so fast that it was hard to keep track. So we got the idea that we could shed light on this process. We could try to answer some of the questions about how colleges ended up on this list, what the investigation entailed, what the findings might be, and just let people really understand how this was all playing out. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about exactly what the tracker is and what, what it does. You know, you sort of explain some of the information that's out there. How, how can people use it? Sure. We, we see it as a tool for people to learn more about this issue. And we call it a tracker. We're tracking all of the federal government's investigations of colleges in what we're calling this wave of enforcement. So in April 2011, the government told colleges that they were going to be paying more attention to this issue and kind of put them on notice to step up their efforts to prevent and respond to students' reports, you know, to try to do more on this issue. And so our goal is really to let people keep up with this process, to see which campuses are under review, to search by institution or by keyword. We have pages for each college that's under investigation that list how many investigations there are. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's three, four, or five. And we give some context on how the issue of sexual assault has come up on that campus. We can also, and John and Ben can talk more about this, but we've let people filter investigations by status, whether they're open or resolved, by state, by other factors like whether they're based on a complaint, which is typically filed by a student or an advocate for that student, 
or whether they're a result of a compliance review, which is kind of a spot check by the education department. So you can see also a growing number of case files that we're getting under FOIA requests to shed some light on what's going on within those investigations. And users can also sign up for weekly email alerts to keep up with all developments. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. I gather from what you're telling me that, that this is all coming from data sets that you're getting, uh, some of it FOIA, but where else are you getting the information? So before we built this tracker, the best way to find out, which was really not that great of a way to find out, and that's why we wanted to do this, which colleges were under investigation, was that each week, on only on request, so it wasn't like they were posting it anywhere, the education department was preparing a PDF. Here are the colleges that are now under investigation. And so we would see, you know, we would tweet that PDF or we would see someone else tweet that PDF, but that was just week to week. So that's where we started was with the the latest PDF yeah. that we had from the education department. And then we FOIA'd to go further back to see the full list, again, with that start date of April 2011, to see the full list of colleges that had been under investigation for Title IX, possible Title IX violations. That's the federal civil rights law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. So anything that was classified as sexual violence, that the allegations involved sexual violence. And we FOIA'd for that full list. There were some public documents that were available, some of the resolution agreements for cases that were already resolved. We have FOIA'd for a lot more. And we've also um, reported on each campus that's under investigation to kind of fill in some of the details about, okay, what is that campus doing in response? Does it have a task force? Does it have particular resources for students so that we can, on each page, show some of what is happening at the institution apart from the investigation? Okay, so now we have all this information, and I assume it's at this point that John and Ben get their hands on it and uh, put together an architecture where people are going to be able to to view it and, and access it and use it. So talk to us a little bit about the your process for um, creating the tracker. Right, so there's sort of an intermediary step where we sort of created this, uh, the initial stages of what eventually turned out to be the Title IX Tracker, which is basically a back-end or sort of a content management system for our editors and reporters to input this information in a user-friendly way so we're not you know, relying on a, on a Google spreadsheet or anything like this. And so we designed the, uh, the application to do a, uh, sort of various things, including collecting news stories about various institutions and creating you know, specific types of fields that would be uh, related to each uh, case. So... From there, we kind of built that first, gave it to the editors, and let them essentially load up our database with these cases. And then off of that sort of data set, we then sort of went into the design phase where we decided what is this going to look like for users, how would users interact with this basic data set. And uh, from there, Ben came up with some mock-ups and um, did most of the design work for it. So, yeah, tell us about the design. Yeah, so once we had that database with really an impressive amount of information that the editors and reporters were able to put together, I sat down and tried to think about, you know, how we could show that in a way that was easy for users to interpret and navigate. And I think, you know, our first first cut of the application, we tried to do our best with that, and it didn't really turn out that well in the long run based on the information we had. The first iteration used the case as the unit, so you could go to a case page and see the information for the case. And we realized a few months in that we didn't have that much information that was specific to investigations. 
So we ended up switching that in our redesign to campus as the element. So you can now go to a campus page and see um, all the cases at that campus. Did that make it easier for you to sort of yeah. you know, hear all the different types of cases? Yeah, definitely. Uh -huh. So we were able to, I think, show the information in a more logical way, um, just in the way that we think about institutions. You can now you know, look up the institution that of interest to you, and then you can go see all the cases that are there and explore all the documents pertaining to them. Yeah, I would say that in that uh, redesign, we also explored a more sort of sophisticated filtering page. And reorganizing the data at the campus level made that more useful to, to individuals. So you can now kind of sort at the state level or at, you know, the private public type of institution level. And that gets you directly to a campus or will show you all the cases at that. So, for example, all cases at private institutions rolled up at the campus level. So that provides a little bit more context as to how many cases are at specific types of institutions, whereas previously it was sort of a, sort of a free text search and a little bit clunkier to navigate. How reactive is it? I mean, how how often is it updating? Or is that something that you guys have to do manually? Is it something it does automatically? Well, I think there are different kinds of updates. Uh, we're certainly trying to keep it updated in terms of information. So each Wednesday, the education department will tell us if there are any new cases. That's that same PDF I mentioned before that you can get only on request. They're used to us, but there's still no distribution list. So we'll figure out, okay, are there any new investigations and add them if they're new on the rare occasion that an investigation is resolved. It happens less often than, than one is opened, but we will add information about the resolution. And then something exciting that's happening now is we've put out all these FOIA requests for more information about the investigations and they're starting to come back. So as we get those documents, we can upload them and both have the documents there in Document Cloud, but then also read through them and break out in bullet points, you know, what's the interesting new insight we have into this investigation. But then we've also done pretty regular technical updates, too, and, you know, tried to keep the site running smoothly and uh, working better for users. So um, I would imagine, you, you know, when you, when you did that second design and you were sort of a thinking ahead as to how you're going to that this is going to live on and how it was going you were going to be able to to update it and everything you you're, you're sort of at a, at a point now where people had a chance to play with it and to use it are, are you already thinking about ways to change it to make it better or are you still in the the early days well we launched in january for the first time uh -huh. and then we relaunched in june so i think we're still getting used to the new format from the launch at the beginning of June and just maybe starting to think about where we could go from here. But I, we feel pretty good about the improvements we made this month. Yeah. And some of the changes that we're also making, you know, we're sort of doing a rolling, we have this tendency to do some small technical updates on a rolling basis every few weeks. And one of those was cr the creation of an API so that now our data is available in structured formats that other developers can access. That was not originally part of the redesign, but we realized, you know, we get with some frequency users that want direct access just to the raw data, and a lot of times that's that goes to the data team and they have to create Excel files or, or CSV files or what have you. Um, so we, we figured, well, we sort of anticipated this is going to be a similar situation, so we just created an API so that people can hit that API and get a lot of that data structured, updated as soon as we update it without having to come to us every time and ask us, oh, give us the new updated list or you know something like that. So there's that. There's also... You know, we have this weekly update that we put together as we get more experience with the users and the user interaction with that. 
that update um, and we're tracking the analytics, we're finding new ways to sort of bring people from that email into the tracker by providing more context about the changes in the in the application or, you know, additions that we're making to the tracker as well. So as we use it and as users use it and we collect that anal- sort of collect the analytics, we adjust to those results. For me, just testing it out myself, I noticed it was really intuitive because I I went in, I searched my former college, nothing came up, but the next closest college came up. And then on the side, it listed all of the other schools in the state of New York. So for me, as if I'm thinking, you know, from a reporter's perspective, it was really kind of localized and really intuitive. So how did you guys incorporate maybe some of the feedback that you were getting from reporters to sort of tailor it to what they were looking for? So you're referencing the sort of the drawer that kind of pops right. out when you're at a case. That was Ben's idea. That was not my idea. Oh, <laughs> that was in Ben's mock-up. That was our <laughs> boss's <laughs> idea. I think that that came from not so much from other reporters, but from realizing via analytics that people were getting to case pages at that point and they weren't going anywhere else. So that indicated that there was some sort of a problem where we weren't giving people the avenues they needed to get to other places on the site. And, uh, our boss, Scott, thought of the idea of adding that side drawer so people can really easily either search for another campus or jump to another campus based on its proximity, campus you're looking at. And that was something, too, that I think we have a button for feedback set up on the site, too. And we had had several requests for a way to search by state. And with that kind of concern that Ben just mentioned about the dead end, you know, would a user get to a case page and then have nowhere else or not really be enticed to go anywhere else? anywhere else from there, we wanted to encourage people to explore and thought if there was a way that we could display other colleges, other cases that might interest them if they had looked for the first one, then that would help them keep exploring. And the drawer with the other colleges in that state really helps with that. I think the tagging, that was a big thing we did with the relaunch is tagging, John mentioned, by campus, you can search for public-private or in a certain state, but then also by case, you can search for, show me another college that has multiple investigations, or show me another investigation that's based on a complaint. And that way you can start to explore based on what that entry point was. So I know that the the website includes links to, to stories that are about the particular cases, which I think is kind of cool because it helps what you were saying before, add that context to just the bare bones facts. Have people in the media reached out to you for some of this data? Sure. Um, we've we've had, I think our, our main users are campus folks who are dealing with these cases and advocates on both sides. There are advocates for victims' rights and advocates for due process rights that really want to follow what's happening here. But we've heard from a number of reporters, um, and we saw with with both of our launches, local coverage in print and TV and radio where there would be some kind of the reporters would localize it. They would look for the institutions that were around there. There was a great report from a television station in Indianapolis. And so they're trying to see, okay, how can we use this as a tool to draw out uh, information that's interesting to our audience? Yeah, at my alma mater, as a matter of fact, uh, in in Indiana. So what's the scope of the the colleges that that this covers, that this addresses? Is this you know, is every institution in the United States or a good portion of it? So are we talking about the issue of sexual assault or I the mean, investigations? I mean, within the tracker. 
So the, the tracker focuses on federal enforcement. So this is a big issue that goes beyond how the education department is looking at it. But the first time that the education department shared publicly how many colleges they were investigating was in May of 2014. It was around the time of a White House summit on this issue. And there were 55 colleges under investigation then. Because a student or an advocate had filed a complaint about something that had happened there or because the education department just heard, hey, something seems off at this place and they decided to investigate proactively. So that was a little bit more than two years ago, 55 investigations. Now there are almost 250. And so in our tracker, we focus on the colleges that have been under investigation at any point in this era of enforcement. So some cases have been resolved, but if a case was open at any point since April of 2011, those are the places that will show up in okay. in the tool. So it's it's whatever's whatever's under investigation. Yes. As opposed, you know, because there may be some small college somewhere that that nothing has shown up yet. Yes. And and so that's why it do, it's not maybe on that list. So all of the information that you're getting, you're either FOIAing or you're getting from this education report or or in other means. Is there anything that you can sort of you know set up to scrape some of this data so that it you know updates automatically, or is this really just you're going to have to, whatever comes in, you're going to have to uh, like cycle it through your process. So we made the decision to have the editors make do the do the actual manual uploads because there's a lot of sort of individual thinking that goes into it. I think what comes out of the education department is very bare bones. We mm-hmm. wanted to have, uh, in terms of like structured data, you know, I think it's just a, a PDF and which has very little information. And we really wanted you know a critical thinking person to be able to add various tags to the the case as a unit or, um, you know, be able to add campus contacts, sort of things that you just, you can't really scrape for. Okay. What would you like to see come out of this? Well, you know, this, this issue has been simmering for a few years and yet there's still not a lot of consensus on what will signal progress. And the federal enforcement has been one of the most active fronts, but that process is still a little murky And so our goal was really to shed light on that process to let people follow it, because if sexual assault is a problem and colleges need to handle it differently, then the process that investigates how they're handling it should be pretty transparent. And so we're we're just trying to shed more light on this issue and make that process of how colleges are being held accountable, whether it's fair, whether it's not fair, what kinds of findings are becoming common. We just wanted to let people take a closer look at that. I guess this is shifting gears a little bit, but looking at the topic as a whole, have you seen, you know, just more interest in this kind of information and this topic in general? I mean, I I guess I'm thinking of the very publicized Rolling Stone article that came out, I guess maybe a year or two ago about this kind of topic, but have you seen just from your perspective, just more interest in this in general? I think it's definitely been the case that this topic gets more attention. And it was about 2012, 2013 that students really started mobilizing. There were students who were coming forward and sharing their personal experiences with sexual assault and with the process that they then went through on campus. They often described it as re-traumatizing in terms of how the administrators were handling their report. And so that movement really started to get more attention and, and traction The Obama administration really took this on as an issue. It's been important to the White House and to the Education Department. And 
Both state and federal legislators have also weighed in and tried to offer their ideas for improving this. And so we've really seen an evolving conversation over the past, I would say, three, four years as people are really scrutinizing colleges and seeing what have they been doing wrong on this front? Uh, Are there things they've been doing right? Are there emerging strategies to handle this problem better? And so that that attention has has increased and doesn't really show signs of going away. Do you see any sign of maybe the education department more actively uh, being transparent about some of the weekly updates? So do you foresee a scenario where instead of you having to bug them every single week, maybe they automatically post these PDFs that you're uh, uploading here? Well, (laughs) <laughs> they're they're always very friendly when you know they they respond every Wednesday. We send them an email around four thirty or five o'clock, and they respond you know within an hour or so. So they're definitely sharing the information. I think I think the office is overwhelmed. They have they put in a budget request for many many more staff members, and I'm trying to remember exactly how many it was. You know, in the hundreds more staff members, and they just didn't get the money to hire that many people. And they have so many investigations open that I think. They're focused on that more than on public information at, at this stage. And so if we can provide that public information, that, that really feels like a service to the public that the government doesn't have the resources for or hasn't made a priority right now. How are the educators, how are the um, institutions responding to the, the tracker? What's been there? Is there any th- trend in any particular way or is it all kind of? Well, one thing we've seen them do is sign up for alerts. We have about... <laughs> Well, straight to their PR department. We we have about 1,200 users signed up for our weekly alerts now, and a lot of them have .edu email addresses. And so it seems like colleges really want to keep up with not only what's happening at their place, but what's happening at other places that might have lessons for them, or they might start to notice a pattern about how cases are being opened or resolved. So hope, hopefully they learn something from it. Has the Chronicle done something like this before? So we definitely have an active data and interactives team and we share a lot of data and we, you know, we try to serve as a resource for that kind of information. But a dynamic kind of, I mean, sometimes within the office, we call this a news app. Ben and John could could speak more to how this yeah, relates how to other work. Di- how is this different than what, you, what, what you've done before? So we have uh, another fairly large, robust news application called uh, Chronicle Data, which lists faculty and uh, staff salaries at all inst- all the institutions in the United States. Also now includes adjunct salaries as well. So that was a large project that sits on a similar sort of technology stack and has a lot of the same infrastructure, but it's also a very large project that we've created. So in terms of news appiness, I think that's a very similar product that we've created, but interactively, Ben does, I mean, Ben and the, and the data interactive team do a lot of different things. Yeah, we we make a lot of data visualizations aimed at allowing users to explore data and gain an understanding by looking through it and interacting with it. Whereas with Title IX, I think it's much more of a um, static process where we're showing visualizations to help you gain context of, you know, what the investigations are, what we have in our databases, um, but they're more of snapshots of the database. So this is this is probably something I should have asked at the very beginning, but let's let's talk a little bit about the the Chronicle's mission and, and and what is it you're trying to do? Is it are you trying to provide information for the education institutions or for the the general public about in, these institutions or both? So 
So our audience, the audience we generally serve is a higher ed audience, faculty, administrators, and people who work on higher ed, whether in foundations or in legislative offices. And I think this issue has been of such broad interest nationally that we are seeing some users, we're seeing some potential for traction in audiences we don't generally serve, but we're very happy to serve. So the advocates, uh, the victims' rights advocates and the due process advocates, for sure, and researchers. And we've had some feedback from parents as well who are trying to understand what's happening, students who are trying to understand what's happening and let that factor into their college decisions or otherwise uh, alumni following up on what's happening with their alma mater. So we've seen a broader consumer audience for this than we have with some of our other projects. Did that surprise you? I was glad that we could help people who are looking for information. You know, when we have feedback that comes in from someone who's maybe not a traditional chronicle reader or user of our of our data tools, then that that's great that we can be a resource. Have you thought about where you might want to go with this and, and maybe expand it at all? So the, the project was created in sort and in, inside of a larger architecture. The actual URL is called projects.chronicle.com slash Title IX. So what we did was set up sort of an infrastructure to be able to support large-scale applications that can integrate with a lot of the services that we already provide for the Title IX project. So it's sort of a first round of large-scale news apps or that can be extended and also share services across uh, the various apps. In terms of the actual Title IX application, I think we're still going to have to see what our, how our users use it or how the actual issue evolves and expands. But as a in sort of a web shop, we used this as a sort of the, the laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for future large-scale large scale news applications. Yeah, before we were going, we were, you were asking about you know how technical you could get. We haven't gone into the weeds yet. Let's go into the weeds a little bit. Okay. What, let's talk about what, what the app is. And, you know, how you put it together, what tools you used, and sort of some of the thinking that went into it. Sure. So a lot of the stuff that we do is primarily Python. We use the Django web framework. Uh, we use Flask for some apps, but our larger our larger applications, we need well, we need automatic administrate, administrative uh, side of it, uh, users and sort of these things that are relatively bulky to stand up. We use Django to do that sort of stuff. And... Um, we have a lot of experience with it. We use a lot. We build a lot of internal tools as well, and those are a lot of those are Django apps as, as well. We also stood up Elasticsearch to do a lot of the filtering and the searching for full text search. We use um, some other Python extensions to do things like scraping websites. So, for example, when we go to add a add a story to one of our uh, cases, we have a sort of a program that will go out to the URL when you save the save the case scrape the page, collect things off of that page, like the title of the article, some, a description field if it exists, an image, and then we sort of take that, store it in our database, or hoist the image back up to Amazon uh, S3. And then in sort of that, uh, that module or that program, as I was saying before, now that sort of that code exists inside of our larger projects infrastructure. So now if we were to, in the future, write another application that was going to need some sort of scraping or... Uh, sort of data collection off of a news website, that's a very simple process to just sort of point that program to that part of the application. So those are some of the the main ones. Ben can talk about some of the front end stuff that we did. Yeah, on the front end. So sometimes for bigger projects on the front end, we'll pull in Angular, which we did for the Chronicle Data Project. 
We didn't do that for this one because it didn't really feel warranted. We didn't think we needed that much weight weight on the page. So we're just using um, Django templates, HTML. I pulled in Canvas, just Canvas for the visualization since they're static. Looks nice, super fast to load. And then we use SAS that compiles to CSS for the styling. And we use Bootstrap, Twitter Bootstrap for the page layout, um, which a lot of places use. We use Gulp to minify the files, mm-hmm. compile the SAS into CSS, stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really sharp page. It's very lean, very nice. Thank you. Thank right. you. We, we really, one of the things that we focused on was page load time. Elasticsearch is something that we at the Chronicle are starting to look a little bit more into. Um, you can do a lot of stuff with it, and it almost acts more as a, at least the way that we're using it, as a, the querying service instead of trying to hit the database and sort of do all these complicated SQL queries, we can load up Elasticsearch with sort of data sets and then hit it with a bunch of filters and then return that data to the filter page. So Elasticsearch can do essentially a series of complicated filtering and you know lookups on the data that we load up the Elasticsearch index with, and uh, that processing time is significantly faster sometimes, depending on how complicated your query gets, than actually hitting a database. So uh, in doing that, Having stood up Elasticsearch, we can create a relatively complicated filtering page, which is quick to load, quick to react, as well as the API, which sort of sits on the same infrastructure as the filtering page that, again, you hit it multiple times with a complicated query string, and it will return information. Yeah, it, it works really fast. I was really uh, impressed. Um, it, it, you know, again, like I said, it's very lean. It's um, you know, very intuitive. You know, like, oh, yeah, I want to look at my college. Oh, I want to see, take a look at the colleges that are near mine. Oh, I want to do this and that. You can move through the site pretty quickly and get a lot of information. And, and the other nice little feature about having the uh, the news stories there to provide context, I really liked a lot. Especially, you know, the one that you mentioned, the Indianapolis paper, jumping that jumping out. I thought that was kind of cool. It seems like it has a lot of depth. It doesn't see, you know, when you first see it, you're kind of like, oh, it looks kind of, doesn't like seem like there's a lot to it. But once you start digging into it, and there's a lot of information in there. And so it's really, really a wonderful tool, I think. Yeah, it brought up information I didn't know that I wanted, I think. So that was nice. <laughs> That's always good. Yeah. That's yeah. always good. So I think we've, I think we've, we can get back into the mainstream, get out of the weeds, get back onto the sidewalk. What's, what's in the future? What are you guys going to be working on next? Have you thought about it? Well, we all are doing multiple projects at a time. So, you know, we came together and worked on this. It, it's been a really great collaboration I think. And at the same time, you know, we're trying to cover campus sexual assault from other angles and explore, you know, through through articles and investigations, what else is going on besides what's happening on the federal enforcement front and also trying to cover the rest of higher ed and a lot of important conversations right now. And I think likewise, Ben and John are doing any number of interesting projects at a time. Well, we were definitely imp- you know, impressed by this. Thank you for coming in. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next time on It's All Journalism. I think that's actually the most important thing that editors and reporters could do to improve their coverage of people of color who are killed by the police because that kind that uh, having a set of checks on my first instinct about what to write and how to represent these people just it makes us stop and think and that's what creates the interruption uh, of our unconscious bias and inevitably uh, for sure will lead to better deeper reporting
In our next podcast, we discuss how to avoid bias in covering acts of violence between the police and people of color. I talked to Rinku Sen, president and publisher of Race Forward, and Jutu Kral, director of law and advocacy at the Opportunity Agenda. These organizations teamed up to release a best practices guide for journalists in the aftermath of the recent shootings of five police officers in Dallas, Texas. It's an important conversation about a big topic. Look out for it next week. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. This week's podcast was produced by me, Michael O'Connell, Amber Healy, and Nicole Lagrisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.